true story. He's sitting at a table in the Middle East. Seminary trained Christian Bible scholar. The other men at the table are all Muslims and they've been sitting there. They've just broken their fast. They're eating because Ramadan is over. And they ask him, as oftentimes happens in these settings, what do you, what is, what do you believe about God? And this seminary-trained Bible scholar knew that if he talked about Jesus as anything more than a great prophet, that that would be greatly offensive to any Muslim. And yet they genuinely wanted to know what he thought. And so he told them, he said, when I asked my wife to marry me, I didn't send somebody else. I went myself and I asked her to marry me. Love compels me to go. He said, that's a picture of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That was beautiful. That was powerful. God said, I'm going to tell them I love them and that I want to marry them, the bride of Christ. That's who we are as, the Christ- as Christians. We're, it's one of the names Scripture gives us, the bride of Christ. Jesus is the groom. And it is a beautiful picture of him coming down to say something to us face-to-face, personally. The question we're answering today is, how did Jesus come? How did Jesus Christ come to earth? How did he come? And the answer is, in some, he came personally, motivated by love. He came in the power of the Holy Spirit. He didn't do it by himself. And he came humbly as a human baby boy. And we're going to look at three pictures in this passage of Matthew 1, 18 through 25. And these three pictures I borrowed from one of the commentators. I, um, his name is Douglas O'Donnell, I think. Douglas O'Donnell. We're going to look at the scandal. We're going to look at the spirit. And we're going to look at the surrogate. Okay? So with that, let's jump in. Starting in verse 18, Matthew is one of the twelve who wrote one of the four Gospels, he's one of the two, two, of the two of the four that were actually with Jesus as disciples in his days as on earth. And this is what Matthew writes as he shares his account of what he either heard Jesus teach or what he experienced as he saw Jesus. And this is what he writes, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. And already we're, we've got something to say. First of all, we're talking about a physical birth. Right? We're talking about real live biology. Right? We, we're not talking about Jesus appeared to be a person. We're not talking about apparitions. We're not talking about here was a man that Jesus then came and inhabited. We're talking about the Lord God put on flesh. This is the, how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah. Messiah means the king, the anointed one. You could say the Christ. It's not his last name. It's his title, Jesus the Messiah. And this is how it came about. His mother Mary... I'm going to leave something out when I read this sentence. Let me set it up. I I need to set this up. So before I read this sentence, this is the scandal. I want you to feel a little bit of the scandal. Okay, now you know the whole story, so it's not going to quite work. But let's just pretend you're hearing this for the first time. Joseph and Mary are engaged to be wed. Okay? All right? And in that day, those marriages were arranged, which sounds horrible to our American sensibilities. 
but it wasn't as bad in many cases as we'd like to think. Um, and it wasn't like they'd never met and, and all of that. But yet the fathers got together and arranged this marriage for better or for worse. And at least Joseph would have had to buy into this, okay? I don't know about Mary. I don't, I don't know, I guess she got much say in it, but you never know. You can't make someone do too much like that. But nevertheless, I don't know. But what we get in the sense from Scripture that we get about these two is that they both love the Lord, that they were both mature in their walk with the Lord, though they were both young, especially Mary being a teenager, and that they both honored the Lord in their obedience to his word and his ways, okay? And so here they are in this arranged marriage, and the, this engagement period, which what we tend to think of as engagement, they called the betrothal. But for them, it was what, much weightier than our engagement, which is, you know, I can take the ring off and throw it at you, and we're not, we're not engaged anymore, okay? Well, it was, a legal, it was a legal binding covenant. They were legally married before they were actually married, okay? In other words, for that year, they didn't live together, they didn't sleep together, I mean, in our day, we sleep before we even get engaged together, it feels like. So, I mean, this is in a day and time when that just didn't happen because you bring great shame on your family. If you did that, it was just not the way of the Lord, and, that's, and it's still not the way of the Lord. So it was a big deal. So for that year, what Joseph was to do, what the husband, or th- what the husband would do is prepare a place for her, for them to live together during that year. And they would get to know each other and... And, and all of that, but it would be, they would be married. They would be considered husband and wife if they were in public together, even though they weren't yet consummating the marriage, okay? So it's during that betrothal period when the angel comes first to Mary and then later to Joseph. And if you read the account in Luke's gospel, you get a lot more detail and you get the interaction between the angel and Mary who tells Mary, this is all that's going to happen, and she asks questions and there's dialogue. Whereas in this passage, Joseph, we don't get a word of Joseph. We get to see what he did and how he responded, but we don't get any of his words. We don't, he didn't say anything recorded in Scripture. Two families that I would think are probably pretty faithful to the Lord to raise two kids like that. And so it's in that setting, in that small village where everybody knew everything and everybody knew everyone and everybody's business and, and then some that I read this second verse, this second part of verse 18. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant. Now let's imagine this, that's where the period is. She was found to be pregnant. So here we have this arranged marriage. Both families are excited because it was a big deal to marry a son and a daughter. It was a big deal for both families. And they find out that she's pregnant. Okay, so that immediately brings shame on both families. They don't know who, they just know somebody, at least they think, they assume, because what else are they to think, right? And so here we have this drama, the tension is thick, and the the fathers, I imagine, get back together and they are yelling at each other for, I don't know, maybe they are, maybe they aren't. uh, Joseph and Mary, do they talk? We don't really know. All we know is that the angel Gabriel came and spoke to Mary before it happened and then to Joseph after it happened. And the result of those encounters with the angel, the Lord of the angel, or the angel of the Lord, sorry, speaking on behalf of the Lord 
as a messenger, which is what angels do, change their course of their lives and the course of history, and it affects why we're here today. So now let me read the verse in full. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Still a scandal, but we get to see, oh, 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 wait a minute. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. This tells us something about Joseph's character. Because my, my translation says he was faithful to the law. Some of yours might say something like he was just or he was righteous. If it says he was just, it means he had a good relationship with the Lord. If it says he was just, it means he had a good relationship with people with respect to the law. In other words, Joseph was a good dude. He was the kind of guy you want your daughter to marry. Okay? And so he's going to follow the law of the Lord, which is the first two-thirds of your Bible. Okay? And what that means is that he's going to do something the law says, and that is expose sin, even though it's going to cost him too. It already cost him, and he, he's, he's like, and I didn't do anything, literally. And so he, but he resolves to divorce her, which he is permitted to do quietly, which is his way of showing not only law, but compassion, justice, mercy. That's what God loves to do. That's what he wants us to do. So he resolved to do the best thing he could do. That was in the best interest of both of them. It's like, let's just not make a big deal about this. We're going to be in enough shame, and we're going to be ostracized for the rest of our lives probably, but we're just going to press through this, um, and we're going to make this happen. Just, we're going to separate quietly. You go your way, and we're just going to get through it. But God intervenes as he said he was going to. In verse 20 it says, But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David. Okay, there's a reference back to what we looked at last week in the genealogy. This is the only time in the Gospels when anyone other than Jesus is called son of David. Now why would Matthew go to the trouble to say that? Because he knew that the Jews reading this version of the Gospel want to know, is this really the Messiah? Because he has to be from the line of David, and you're going to have to demonstrate that to me. Well, not only is it in the genealogy, which we saw last week, but here we've got an angel calling Joseph son of David. Okay? And if you're convinced that an angel spoke to somebody, you're probably convinced that whatever the angel said was true. Angel of the Lord, pretty reliable. Joseph, son of David, and then he says these words that are in the Bible, I've heard, I've never counted, 365 times, one for every day of the year maybe. Do not be afraid. I don't want you to raise your hands, but I wonder how many of us today are afraid of something. Do not be afraid, in his case, to take Mary home as your wife. Because if he takes her home as his wife, then he is discredited by the community by the synagogue leaders, probably by his own family, may even move just to get to a place where they're not ostracized. He knew this was not something that anybody wanted to do. And yet, I think part of him wanted to, and God gives him clear direction to, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. And he tells him why. 
Because what is conceived in her, okay, there's more biology. This is not some imaginary child. This is a, a child conceived miraculously. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know what he thought at that moment, but it was the, probably the only explanation that he could get that could bring him any peace. Because it meant it wasn't another man. And he knew it wasn't himself. The Holy Spirit. In Luke one thirty-five, he tell the, the angel tells Mary that she says, I, I, she, the angel tells her, you're going to have a son. He's going to be Jesus. He's going to save his people from his sins. And she says, okay, well, how will this happen since I'm a virgin? And he says, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. I would think it wouldn't really be a stretch for you and me to believe that the God who created the universe with the word could somehow intervene in his own biology. He could somehow step into his own creation and tweak it just a little bit to make a point, which is what he's doing, and let this happen, make this happen. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And this is what Jesus means. Jesus means the Lord is my salvation, or the Lord saves. Okay? Now, I, I touched on this last week. I want to make sure that we are clear on why the virgin birth matters because we hear about it, people make fun of it, nobody really understands why it matters. It matters, and here's why. So, go back to Genesis 3. Go back to Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve take fruit from the tree and eat. Okay? And, and they do the one thing. You have one job. <laughs> Don't. They had one thing they couldn't do. Can you imagine leaving your kids at home and having only one rule of one thing they couldn't do? You can do anything else, but just don't do this one thing. What are your kids going to do? Whatever you do, do not drink the last Coke in the refrigerator. Right? Where'd it go? The kids ate the fruit. And because they did, something, they did something that had never been done before in the garden, they disobeyed their daddy. You say, what's the big deal? Disobedience. It's everything hinges and falls on obedience and disobedience. Because obedience communicates love for the one who told you. The one with authority who gave you direction and command or instruction. And to not trust and obey and lean into that is to say to that person, I do not love you, I do not trust you. I want what I want over what you want, even though what you want is best for me. That's foolishness, right? It's also wickedness. The Bible calls it both. That happens in the garden. And I know a lot of people don't believe that Adam and Eve were real. Jesus talks about them as historical figures, people who really lived and existed and did things that have consequences that we still reap the consequence of today. And as a result of that, the seed of Adam passed on through all the children born to Adam and Eve included this seed of sin. Okay, and this seed of sin, it's notice it doesn't come from Eve, it comes from Adam through Eve, but it is Adam's seed that is what gives us our sin nature. Okay, so how do you birth a child without the sin nature? You birth the child without dad being involved. Well, we can't do that, but God can and did. And he told Israel he was going to do it 700 years before he did it. Which is why he quotes Isaiah 7.14. 7, 
Verse 22, I say it again. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has said through the prophet Isaiah. Quote, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And we'll drill down on that on Christmas Eve in this room, 6 p.m. on on Christmas Eve. So I still, you know, so, so why does Jesus have to be born without the seed of sin? Because if Jesus is born without the seed of sin, he is born sinless, which makes him an acceptable sacrifice, a substitute. So that when he dies on the cross, he's not just a martyr. Anybody else dies on the cross for the, quote, sins of the world, no sins are forgiven because all of the other people born in this world have been born with the seed of Adam, the seed of sin in us. That's why we have a sin nature. It's why you don't have to teach anybody how to tell a lie. Toddlers are just fine at just ripping them off. You don't have to teach them, okay? And it's because we are wired that way because of the sin of Adam and Eve, starting with them, okay? passed down through us but Jesus skips and doesn't get the seed of Adam because of the Holy Spirit taking care of that so Joseph is not Jesus's blood father in case you're not following Mary is his blood mother it's interesting on the genealogies her genealogy also goes back to David shows that the bloodline still gets to Jesus but what about Joseph? How does Joseph, how does Jesus really become the line? Well, I'll get to that in a minute. How he can also become the legal son, the legal line of David. We'll get to that in the last part. So Jesus has no sin when he's born. Now he still could sin in his life, right? Tempted though we are, is the scriptures say, though he was tempted as we are, he did not sin one time. So when Jesus went to the cross, he went as somebody who had never sinned. He was tempted as we are. He, he could have sinned. That's a good argument, right? But if he could have sinned, then would he have been God? Not if he had sinned. But then could he really have sinned if he was? Yeah. I don't, yeah, over lunch, right? It's too big for us. All I can tell you, Scripture says, tempted as we are means that he was tempted like you and I are tempted. The difference is we give in and he doesn't. He never did. And because he didn't, he was an acceptable sacrifice. All the Old Testament scriptures that talk about all the sacrificial system, and it was always bring a lamb or a goat or something, one-year-old, without defect, symbolic of no no sin. Jesus fulfills that. The virgin birth matters. The virgin conception matters. This is why God did it this way, to make it very clear. We have no hope apart from Jesus. You cannot be born good enough. You cannot be good enough. You can't get there on your own. If God does not step in and intervene on your behalf and mine, we have no hope. And the way he chose to step in on our behalf is through his son, Jesus Christ, who took the punishment we deserve so that we wouldn't have to. And the way we know that his, his substitutionary atonement was acceptable in God's eyes is that God raised him up on the third day and he's so showing that he conquered sin and guilt, shame and hell itself, all of it. Death, he conquered it all. And that's why I have hope that this is not the end and that I'm going to live forever, not in this body. It's going back to the dirt where it belongs. But I will get the new body and I will live in the new heaven and the new earth forever with my Lord and Creator. And I'm looking forward to those days with great expectation. In the meantime, I must finish the sermon. So we have the scandal, 
We have the Spirit. We see the Holy Spirit working here. And we have the surrogate. The surrogate or the one who's going to step in and take the place of, and that's Joseph. Joseph is the surrogate father. Here's why he matters, and here's what he does. When Joseph woke up, that is from the dream, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. And kids, if you don't know what that means, ask mom and dad at lunch, because I can't wait to hear how that goes. And he gave him the name Jesus. Now, here's what Joseph did. This is what Joseph accomplished. This is how Joseph made Jesus able to be in the line of David. He married his mother, and he named his son. Those are the two things, okay? And both were in obedience to what God had called him to do. God chose him. God called him. God commanded him. But Joseph did the one thing that he had control over. He obeyed. He didn't have to obey, but he did. And let me show you, let me show you and define for you what obedience looks like. He did it promptly, and he did it completely. He didn't delay. He woke up from the dream, and he immediately took care of business. Same way Abraham did when God told him, I want you to take your son to the mountain and sacrifice him, your one and only son. Okay? And, and Abraham got up early in the next morning, and they started out. Okay? Delayed obedience is disobedience. Incomplete obedience is disobedience. Let's just boil it down so that even a seventh grader can understand. Okay? Please take out the trash. There's no movement. There's no obedience until there's movement to do that actually, that what actually has been asked to be done. Or there's the movement and they go to take it and they take the trash, they take the bag out of the trash can, they carry it out, they put it in the garbage can, they walk back in, and they walk back to their seat, and there sits the empty can with no new bag in it put back in its place. Have they finished? Not in my house. Is that complete obedience? No. Is that obedience? No. Okay, now that's a silly example, but God is asking and calling and even commanding you and I to do things in Scripture over and over and over. And he expects prompt obedience, and he expects complete obedience. Now, how do we do that? This is the beauty of this story, is he tells us how. Two steps. Okay? First one is, it goes back to the scandal. What was it that Joseph was afraid of? Remember? He said, don't be afraid to take Mary as your, as your don't, take, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Why? Because of all that all the other people were going to think about them, all the things people were going to say about them, all the other things that people were going to do because of that. And so Joseph had a choice. Which do I care more about? What they think or what God thinks? You're not going to obey God if you care more about what other people think than what he thinks. That's what fear of God means. That's why the Bible says the fear of God is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. And over and over and over it talks about the only thing we are to fear is God. And that's because what he thinks matters. And what everyone else thinks, eh, not so much. Joseph made the right, right wise, godly choice. And God has blessed you and I because of his obedience. Okay? 
So that's the first thing. The second thing is where it really gets hard, right? You and I know what we should do, but we don't do it, right? Or we don't do it promptly, or we don't do it completely. What do we need to help us power through and do what it is we know we should do, even want to do, but just allow what other people think to stop us? The Holy Spirit. Okay? Now, I grew up in United Methodist Church as a a kid and through college. Okay? And the logo for the United Methodist Church is a cross with a flame. That's what the red thing is. I know it's kind of hard to tell, but the flame represents the Holy Spirit. Except that when I would go to church, the only thing I would hear about would be anything but. I didn't hear much about the Holy Spirit. So then I get married and and eventually become active in the Southern Baptist churches. And their logo is a cross with a Bible in it. Okay? And they talk about the cross and they talk about Jesus. But the Holy Spirit is not talked about a whole lot, not preached about a whole lot. That mysterious third person of the Trinity is, well, hard for us. He's mysterious. We're not quite sure what to do with him. Some people, we treat him like the crazy uncle of the Trinity. And, and part of that, I think, is because we don't know and there's a mystery. And I think part of it is because he does posture himself this way. The Holy Spirit, you feel like when you're reading Scripture, steps back and he, he kind of lives in the background. He doesn't draw attention to himself, which should tell us something when we start trying to draw attention to ourselves. But that's another sermon for another time. So he's, it's like he's always pushing Jesus and the Father forward. He wants to make much of them. And then if you watch Scripture, sometimes the Father's like trying to lift up Jesus, and then Jesus is over here going, oh, no, no, you, you. No, 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 you, you, you. And it's like they're, they're lifting each other up. Go to Philippians 2, 2 6 through 11, and you'll see. God exalts Jesus to the highest place. You read in other places of Scripture that at the end of the millennial reign, Jesus is going to give the kingdom back to his daddy. It's all fixed. Here you go. So there's, the, and the Holy Spirit the whole time is in the background going, yes, awesome, awesome. There, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because why? Because he knows it's not about him. And yes, he's a him, not an it. Just read the pronouns in when you read the Bible. The Holy Spirit is he. Because why? Because God is one who expresses himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they're all equal in power, and they're all equal in value, and they're all different in the sense of how you look at God. Just like, a, a, like we talked about last week, looking at a diamond and looking at it from different angles. That's the same diamond, even though you're seeing it from different angles. And God expresses himself in those ways because he's trying to take an infinite idea and bring it down to a level that an ant can understand. And, you know, how go, good that goes. So what do we do with this? What do, we, what do we take away from this? It's interesting. This is nice. But wh- what do I do with this? Well, here's what I'm going to do with this, okay? And maybe you can get something from this, too. Um, Luther, Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King Jr. from the 20th century, Martin Luther from the 16th century, the reformer who nailed the 95 Theses to the door in, in Wittenberg, I think, um, said that the Bible is like the manger and baby Jesus is, Jesus is, is, is the baby. It's like, it's like Jesus is in the Bible. is like the baby in the cradle. Okay? It's all about Jesus. Okay? And I would say it's all about Jesus because Jesus said, if you love me, you'll do what? You'll obey me. 
He says that several times in the Gospels on the night he's betrayed, right before he goes to the cross. He says to the disciples, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. If you don't, you won't. Evidence. So evidence that you love the person who asked you to take out the trash and do it promptly and completely, the evidence that that respect and love is there is that you will do it the way they would want you to do it. Okay, again, a simple illustration, but the point is the same. Okay, let's not be caught looking at the manger and inspecting the manger and ignoring the baby who is the son, right? The one we are to adore. These are the words of the one we're to adore. Okay, the written word, yes, but Jesus is the living word. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and he was with God in the beginning. John 1. And so as we think about what do we do with this, we need to remember who Jesus is. He is the, uh, he is the sovereign king. And his arrival is what we celebrate at Christmas, knowing that he's coming again. He's coming back, but not as a humble little baby, but as a conquering king who has come to finish what he started. So what are our takeaways? Look back at the three, three pictures. The scandal is I have to decide who I want to please, God or people. Just decide right now. And if you don't decide, it's already decided you're going to please people. You're going to care what people think more than what God thinks. But if you walk in the fear of the Lord, then you'll do what he wants you to do, even when it's not popular and even when the consequences may not be hunky-dory. This is the scandal. The Spirit, this is how you do this. This is learning to walk in step with the Holy Spirit. When I, walk, when I affirm that I'm going to do what I care and do what God cares and does and wants me to do, then I'm, going to, um, I'm engaging faith. I'm exercising the faith muscle. Well, it's kind of like when you're driving a car, right? It's got power steering. The power steering doesn't do anything until you begin to turn the wheel. Then the power steering starts to work. The pump starts pumping or it, it starts to pump more as needed. And as that wheel turns, the power needed to turn those wheels is immediately applied to the faith effort that if I do this, the wheel's going to turn. It's going to be relatively easy. And when I step out and obey God, it's like the Holy Spirit brings the power that I need to actually do what I have decided, resolved to do. I've sub- gladly submitted my will to him in obedience because I love him and I trust him and I believe he, he wants me to do what is best and right. And so I begin to do that. And then the last one, right, the surrogate. What did, Jesus, what did Joseph actually do? He obeyed promptly and he obeyed completely. And he obeyed the, the one that he had said, I care more about what God thinks than what people think. It's really not that complicated, is it? I'm going to challenge you with one more thing. This Christmas, you're going to be with family and friends and people at the office. They're going to have Christmas parties, neighborhood parties, class parties. You have an opportunity before you to not be silent about the story, the true story, the meaning of Christmas. And you've You've got more right than anybody on the planet to tell people what the actual story is about. What's the real meaning? Now, let's remember our, our verse. Our, our verse for this year is 1 Peter 3.15, when it says, um, always be prepared or always be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have and do it with gentleness and respect. So how we do it matters, but that we do it matters because you're going to fail if you don't do it. Now, I'm not saying that there's never a time to be quiet 
You've got to walk in the Holy Spirit, right? But that obedience piece, right? If I care more about what God thinks than what other people think, then I'm going to be bold and ready to share. I know I have the Holy Spirit empowering me to share, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I always share. It depends, but I'm ready to obey promptly and completely as he, as he leads. And folks, it's as simple as saying, you know, as you're celebrating at whatever time seems the best, you know, would it be okay if I just read part of the Christmas story since that's what this is all about? I mean, just tell it like it is, even if people don't necessarily, it doesn't even register. For some people, Christmas is bows and ornaments and trees, and that's Christmas and Santa. But you have the opportunity, because you have the truth on your side, and you have the opportunity to speak truth into their lives in a bold but gentle way and say, can I just read, just take me less than three minutes and read those verses, 18 through 25, chapter 1. Just read them. You don't have to pray. You don't have to preach. You can even blame me. Well, my preacher wanted me to read this. You know, whatever it takes, okay? But listen, how sweet a moment that will be. And the Holy Spirit will work because he's already been working, and he will continue to work whether you and I cooperate with him or not. I think you would like to be a part of that. I think you would be blessed by being a part of that. And I want to encourage you to do that at least once this Christmas season. Of course, it's easier to celebrate Christmas if you know Christ. Um, But he loves you just as you are. And you don't have to perform. Because we already heard we're made in his image. In the image of God, he created us. They created us. It says in Genesis 1, 26 and 7, they, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, created us. And you can see that God doesn't make junk. Just look around. Let's pray. Lord, as we, um, as we think about this amazing story that happened thousands of years ago, we marvel at the truths that are there that we've never even thought about. We thank you for bringing them to light. We thank you that we could walk out of here today and say, I heard from God today. But Lord, we know also that that's not all you want to accomplish. You don't want us just to say, I heard from God today. That's not enough. You want us to act. You want us to act on what we've heard. You want us to do what, God, you are leading us to do. And we know if you went to the trouble to send your son to die on the cross for our sins, that you would want us to have the courage to tell people that truth so that they could realize the blessings that come from that. It's really not that complicated. But it is hard. We need you, Lord, to work in us a holy boldness that allows us to share in such a way that we can do so boldly but gently at the same time with compassion but also with justice. And Lord, we just need you to help us do that. And I ask that there would be people who come to know Christ indirectly or directly as a result of our obedience to that. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.